1968, shortly after winning the Pulitzer Prize, Will Durant and his wife Ariel consented to a television interview. The interviewer, who fancied himself something of an intellectual, posed to Durant the following question. If I were to ask you to name the person who has most influenced the 20th century, would it be Karl Marx? Durant paused for a moment and then replied, Well, if you use the word in its largest sense, we would have to give the greatest share of influence to the technical inventors, to men like Edison. Doubtless, the development of electricity has transformed the world even more than any Marxian propaganda. Then, if you think in terms of ideas, I think the influence of Darwin is still greater than the influence of Marx. Later, during that same interview, the interviewer asked, Of all the characters populating the story of civilization, whom would you have most liked to have known? Durant contemplated the question seriously, and then poker-faced, replied, Madame de Pompadour. The interviewer was dumbfounded. Why is that? he asked. A twinkle came to Durant's eyes as he answered. Well, she was beautiful, she was charming, she was luscious. What else do you want? I cite these two anecdotes not simply to reveal Durant's views on the influence of inventors and biologists on human history, nor even his tendency to use wit to disarm journalists who took themselves or their vocations too seriously, but rather to show you that his opinion on assessing the significance of individuals and events from human history was something that was constantly sought after, sometimes twice in the same interview. It is entirely understandable that Durant should find himself asked to answer such questions. Any time a man spends over half a century researching and writing an 11-volume history of civilization, it is natural that people are going to want to know what conclusions he has drawn from the enterprise, to know what eras, individuals, and achievements stood out in his mind as being the greatest or most significant. Who, for example, would Durant rate as the greatest thinkers in human history? Who would he rate as the truly great poets, the ones that pluck notes upon heartstrings that continue to resonate hundreds and thousands of years after their passing? And what would be the absolute best books one should read in order to receive a meaningful and useful education? Over the course of Durant's career, he responded to the increasing public demand for such qualified assessments by putting pen to paper and crafting a series of essays containing his personal rankings of the 10 greatest thinkers, the 10 greatest poets, the 100 best books of an education, for an education, the 10 peaks of human progress, and 12 vital dates in world history. Fortunately, all of these essays have been brought together in the greatest minds and ideas of all time. The philosophy that resonates from the pages of all of Durant's books is unabashedly pro-human and serves to underscore the splendor of our intellectual and artistic heritage. Durant always sought to report on the positive achievements in human events and history. Durant chose to illuminate with his pen the mountain peaks of greatness in our species' history. The Greatest Minds and Ideas of All Time is a book containing the absolute best of our heritage passed on for the edification and benefit of future generations, replete with Durant's renowned uh, wit, his unique ability to explain the profoundest of events, and ideas in simple and exciting terms. Through pose that rises at times to the heights of poetry, 
The Greatest Minds and Ideas of All Time is an extension of Durant's long-standing invitation to enter the world of the best of the best and a means by which one can come to recognize and befriend genius. The dividends from such an enterprise are many, as Durant once noted. Direct quote from Durant here. We cannot live long in that cel- cel- celestial realm of all genius without becoming a little finer than we were. And though we shall not find there the poignant de- delirium of youth, we shall know a lasting gentle happiness, a profound delight which time cannot take from us until it takes all. All right, that was an excerpt from the introduction of the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is The Greatest Minds and Ideas of All Time. Uh, it's written by Will Durant, and it was compiled and edited by the author of the introduction. His name is John Little. I want to read just so you... Well, first, let me let me tell you where I found this book. I think I mentioned it on um, when I just did that podcast on the lessons of history. Uh, at the end of that book, there's a bunch of other lists of books written by Will and Ariel Durant. This one had the greatest title. I mean, the greatest minds of ideas of all time. I immediately ordered it. Didn't even look into the book. Just ordered it. It came, and it's it's another one of these hundred and ten page books where he's really trying to distill all the lessons that he learned from half a century of um, trying to document the, the history of our species, right? And let me read what how this diff- how this book is different from Lessons of History, though. This is just from the front cover, real quick. A wise and witty compendi- compendium of the greatest thoughts, greatest minds, and greatest books of all time, listed in accessible and succinct form by one of the greatest scholars. From the hundred best books to the ten greatest thinkers to the ten greatest poets, here is a concise collection of the world's most significant knowledge. For the better part of a century, Will Durant dwelled upon and wrote about the most significant eras, individuals, and achievements of human history. His selections have finally been brought together in a single compact volume. Durant eloquently defends his choices of the greatest ideas and minds. But this is such an important point now that, even more important now that I've already finished the book. But he also stimulates readers into forming their own opinions. So right there embedded in that sentence is, this is completely subjective. Your list is going to be different than Durant's, then it would be different than mine. Um, the, the the benefit of reading this is because, you know, he spent multiple decades. Even if we don't agree with his opinion, his opinion is unique. There's very few people in human history that spent as much time as he did thinking and writing about all this. So I, I would want to know what the conclusions uh, he arrived at, right? Um, so it also stimulates readers into forming their own opinions, encouraging them to shed their surroundings and biases and enter the country of the mind, a timeless realm where the heroes of our species dwell. From a thinker who always chose to exalt the positive in the human species, the greatest minds and the ideas of all time, stays true to Durant's optimism. This is a book, this is the important part, this is really why I'm reading this whole section, This is, and then I'll get back into the book. This is a book containing the absolute best of our heritage, passed on for the benefit of future generations, filled with Durant's renowned wit, knowledge, and unique ability to explain events and ideas in simple and exciting terms. This is a pocket-sized liberal arts and humanist curriculum in one volume. Okay. So before I jump back into the book, there is another quote at the beginning. Um, And the note of myself is, great quote, great goal. And this is from Will Durant. If a man is fortunate, he will, before he dies, gather up as much as he can of his civilized heritage and transmit it to his children. And in his final breath, he will be grateful for this inexhaustible legacy, knowing that it is our nourishing mother and our lasting life. So... I was I was actually talking to a friend via text message about this book. He's also a fan of Durant. He although he didn't he hasn't read this book yet. 
and he was asking me how it was. And it's really hard to describe because it's a collection of essays, some of which I'm not even going to, there's not even a quote, like from the, I, there's nothing, I, I didn't take any notes on the 10 greatest poets. That's just my personal bias. Um, I'm a sucker for aphorisms. I love people that can uh, transmit ideas in, in few words. Um, but I'm just, I'm just, I don't read Walt Whitman. I'm just not into to classical poetry. Um, but what I was telling him is he's going to, Durant makes you work for it. There's many times on reading this book where I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't even know if I'm understanding what the, the point he's trying to make. But then you just keep putting, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other metaphorically. One page leads to the next. And then you just stumble upon a paragraph or a sentence or sometimes an entire, like there's, there's some cases where I'm just going to read you several pages. And it's just like, wow, this was worth it. The I don't, you know, there's, it's funny. There's a story, um, there's a story Kevin Hart told one time, and um, he's at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, and he's working on a new material, and he's there with Chris Rock, and, uh, you know, Kevin Hart goes up, Chris Rock uh, gives Kevin Hart some notes on, you know, hey, maybe you want to use this word. They're helping each other work out their sets, right? And Chris Rock goes up, and Kevin Hart does the same thing. So they're in the back of the club, and they're talking, going over the notes, talking about different ideas and, and, and sharing, trying to help each other, right? Dave Chappelle walks in, and he's like, hey, what's going on? Hey, Dave, what are you doing? And Dave Chappelle goes up and he's like, oh, I'm just going to go up. And I, I think he goes up for maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour, whatever the case was. But Kevin Hart says, oh, wow, like me and Chris Rock are sitting in the back of the club listening to Dave Chappelle. And, you know, a few minutes into it, it might have been 15. Don't remember what it was. Let's say 15 minutes into it. He says Kevin Hart uh, he says him and uh, Chris Rock looked at each other. They took their notes. They balled them up and they threw them in the trash. And that's how they felt the difference between what they, what they, again, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to communicate, right? And make people laugh and hopefully cause them to think. Um, so even though Durant is doing that in writing, I'm trying to do that through the podcast, right? There's many times when I'm reading this book where I wanted to just stand up and throw the book. Like I, I'm never going to be able to, just, I'm never going to be able to communicate the way this guy can communicate. I can see why he won, I think he won the Pulitzer twice. National Book Award. He's just one. I mean, go to his Wikipedia page. It's just award after award after award. I can see why he's the most read historian of the 20th century. So that's what I'm, I'm telling you right up front. Even though this is going to be just a random collection of highlights and notes, skipping over some of the essays. So let me go ahead and get to. This is the section he talks about. Uh, the first chapter, which again, it's not really. It wasn't written as a chapter. It's compiled as a chapter. It's an essay. It's a shameless worship of heroes. And he just talks about why he feels. First, I, I like what he does. He, he comes up with this idea, you know, some people through history, Marx being one of them, that, you know, doesn't believe in, in greatness, essentially. That, you know, we're all basically the same, which to me is just laughable on its face. And Durant completely takes the opposite view. So he talks a little bit about that, why he's just shame. He shamelessly he calls it shameless hero worship. Um Shameless worship of heroes, rather. All right, so let me get into this. I see history not as a dreary scene of politics and carnage, but as the struggle of man through genius with the inertia of matter and the baffling mystery of the mind. Remember, he, I, 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 think I, I don't even think I mentioned that in the whole story about Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and the rest of the, the reason I bring that up is because Durant writes almost like he, he's writing poetry, but it's not poetry. It's you'll see what I mean. It's just it's really amazing. And that's also gets it gets kind of confusing at certain points. Um, so he says um, the inertia of matter and baffling mystery of the mind, the struggle to understand control and remake himself and the world. 
was talking about the the huge like anybody that's alive that's thinking that's somewhat ambitious is talking about that like i want to understand i want to struggle understand control and remake myself and the world i see men standing on the edge of knowledge and holding the light a little farther ahead men molding people into better instruments of greatness he's talking about his hero worship right the people that are able to do this to affect the lives of other people men dreaming of finer lives and living them here is a process of creation more vivid than in any myth a godliness more real than in any creed. To contemplate such men, to insinuate ourselves through study. What are we doing on founders? Exactly what we're doing. To insinuate ourselves through study into some modest dis- dis- discipleship to them. To watch them at their work and warm ourselves at the fire that consumes them. This is to recapture some of the thrill that youth gave us. Okay, so I'm going to move ahead to, he used that chapter as an introduction to what he feels are the greatest, the um, the 10 greatest thinkers. And he has some criteria for it, um, Does and this is what it is. Um, well, we should be ruthless and dogmatic here. And though though break our hearts, we shall admit no hero to our list whose thought, however subtle or profound, has not had an enduring influence upon mankind. So this is not the ten greatest thinkers in the sense of like their ideas were the best. It's the their ideas survived. So I would really summarize what he's saying here. It's survival over everything. And I always talk to you about this idea. One of my favorite books, it's this book called anti-fragile and the way that the author summarized it he's like how would you explain explain what anti-fragile is to a five-year-old and he says time is smarter than you so the note i leave myself here is remember time is smarter than you so duran is saying that these are people that most influence the most amount of people for the longest period of time that's the criteria that he's using let's go back to that um so it says, and though it breaks our hearts, we shall admit no hero to our list whose thought, however so profound, has not had an enduring influence upon mankind. This must be our supreme test. We shall try to take an account uh, of the originality and scope, the veracity and depth of each thinker's thought. But what we must bear in mind above all, so this is his single greatest criteria, right? Is the extent and persistence, I love that word, his extent and persistence of his influence upon the lives and minds of men. So I skip over a bunch of these. I'm just going to give you the list because it's fast. Uh, the first one was Confucius. The second one was Plato. And this is where we find my first highlight of this section. Why Plato? Why do we love Plato? Because Plato himself was a lover. Lover of comrades. Lover of the intoxication of dialectical dialectical revel, revelry. Passionate seeker of the elusive reality behind thoughts and things. We love him for his unstinted energy. For the wild nomadic play of his fancy. For the joy which he found in life in all its unredeemed and adventurous complexity. That's a great sentence. That's a great goal. We love him because he was alive every minute of his life. God, that's a, that's a great sentence again. He was alive every minute of his life and never ceased to grow. How could you not like that? Such a man can be forgiven for whatever errors he has made. We love him because he retained throughout his 80 years that zeal for human improvement, which is the most, which is for most of us, the passing luxury of youth. Then he mentions Aristotle, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and then we go to Coper- Copernicus, which is number five on his list. And then I left myself here is really simple. This writing is unbelievable. 
Copernicus's book on the revolutions of the celestial orbs was well-named, for no book in history has created a greater revolution. That pious Polish monk, sitting patiently before the baffling stars, had meant no harm. He had no suspicions of the bearings of his thought on the future of belief. He had lost himself in the search for knowledge. He was sure that all truth must be good and beautiful and would make men free. And so, by the magic of his mathematics, he transformed a geocentric and and anthropocentric universe, a world that revolved about the earth and man, into a kaleidoscope of planets and stars in which the earth seemed but a moment's precipitation of a floating nebula. Everything was changed. Distances, significances, destinies. It was as if the walls of a man's house had been torn down by some blind and angry wind, leaving him unsheltered in the darkness of infinity. That is a hell of a way to describe the idea that the earth rotates around the sun and not vice versa. (laughs) That is fantastic thinking and writing. Uh, Number six, Sir Francis Bacon. Number seven, Sir Isaac Newton. Number eight, Voltaire. Number nine, Immanuel Kant. And number 10, Charles Darwin. And that's where we'll pick up more of my highlights. For what did Darwin do but offer quietly and with disarming humility a world picture totally different from that which had contented the mind of man before? We had supposed that it was a world of order, moving under divine guidance and omnipotent intelligence to a just and perfect perfect fulfillment in which every virtue would find at, at last its fit reward. But Darwin, without attacking any creed, describe what he had seen. Suddenly, the world turned red, and nature seemed to be only a scene of slaughter and strife, in which birth was an accident and only death a certainty. Nature became natural selection, that is, a struggle for existence, and not for existence merely, but for mates and power, a ruthless elimination of the unfit. The surface of the earth seethed with warring species and competing individuals. Every organism was the prey of some larger beast. Every life was lived at the expense of some other life. Great natural catastrophes came. Ice ages, earthquakes, tornadoes, droughts, pestilences, famines, wars. Millions and millions of living things were weeded out, were quickly or slowly killed. Some species and some individuals survived for a little while. This was evolution. This was nature. This was reality. Copernicus had reduced the earth to a speck among melting clouds. Darwin reduced man to an animal fighting for his transient mastery of the globe. I think that's where Duran is at its best. In three paragraphs, he describes the, the main point of Darwin's entire, like the, the work of his life, his life's work. And Duran is able to condense these ideas so we can carry them with us in just a few paragraphs. So that again, that's that's just remarkable. And I don't know if I'll ever, no matter how long I do uh, I do this, I don't know if I'll ever be able to even re- come close to that. That's just amazing. So he's got um, a list that's very interesting. He he decides okay, what's he writes an essay on the hundred best books for an education. I'm not going to read the list at all. I'm going to read. He has this introduction to it um, about. And it's really, he's telling us about reading. So really, this is Durant on reading, which I found really interesting. And 
I, I chuckled. <laughs> the way he describes books. This is just hilarious. The, 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 the second paragraph here. If I were rich, I would have many books. And I would pamper myself with bindings bright to the eye and soft to the touch. Paper genuinely opaque and type such as men designed when printing was very young. I would this is the part where I started chuckling. I would dress my gods in leather and gold and burn candles of worship before them at night and string their names like beads on a rosary. He's talking about a personal library. <laughs> I would have my library spacious and dark and cool and safe from alien sights and sounds with slender casements opening on quiet fields, voluptuous chairs inviting communion and reverie. Shaded lamps illuminating sanctuaries here and there, and every inch of the walls concealed with the mental heritage of our race. And there, at any hour, my hand or spirit welcome my friends, if their souls were hungry and their hands were clean. In the center of that temple of my books, I would gather the 100 best of all the educative, I don't know if I pronounced that word correctly, literature in the world. Will you sit down there with me? Perhaps, this is, this is fantastic again, perhaps you're a college graduate and are ready then to begin your education. And he italicized begin. It's very interesting, right? Perhaps you've never had a chance to go to college and have never considered what else our children learn there except the latest morals. So we see through his writing, he's not a real big fan of formal education, right? We talk about this all the time. You need to have your own personal curriculum. They might, uh, they might learn many fine things if they came to it old enough. But our youngsters take so long to grow up in these complex days that they are too immature when they enter college to absorb or understand the treasures offered them there so lavishly. That's a really interesting idea, that you have to be mature and old enough or at a right point in your mind to actually open your mind to this education. If you've studied with life rather than with courses, it may be as well. The rough tutelage of reality has ripened you into some readiness to know great men. So the way he talks about the experience of reading the thoughts and ideas of people that have come long before us is this idea of you get to know great men. Charlie Munger says, make friends with the eminent dead. It's the exact same fucking idea. How cool is that? Can you spare an hour? This is fantastic, too. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, you must read really fast. Like, you must be speed. Like, you, like are you, do you practice speed reading? I'm like, no. Rushing through a book is like rushing through sex. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I enjoy reading. I don't want it to get over. I read actually very slow. Uh, when I'm reading for the podcast, I would estimate I maybe read 30 pages an hour. You know, I'm sitting down with a ruler, with a pen. I have notes. Like, I'm not rushing through these things. Um, and the reason I bring that up now is because if you if you do it consistently, what Durant's about to d describe to us, you know what, let me, I'm going to read this to you. He, at the very end of his list, let me see if I can find it because I don't think I highlighted that. Uh, at the very end of his list, he talks about, okay, here's 100 books, and this is the time required. So I'm going to fast forward to that. I'm going to read this section, then fast forward to this, because this is a very fascinating idea. Can you spare an hour a day? Or if some days are too crowded with life and duty to give you leisure for these subtler things, can you atone for such bookless evenings by an extra hour or two on those Sunday mornings? Let me have seven hours a week. And I will make you a scholar and a philosopher. Out, and I will make a scholar and a philosopher out of you. Seven hours a week is what he's asking for us. In four years, you shall be as well educated as any new fledged doctor of philosophy in the land. So let me fast forward to a point I wasn't going to um, include. 
at the very end of the book, he has a list, or not the very, the very end of the section, he's got 100 books, right? And he breaks it into different sections. And he says, books marked with a star are recommended for purchase. The number of books starred, 27. The approximate cost, uh, based on a survey of secondhand bookstores, he's writing this like 60 years ago. So he says 90 bucks. There's going to be more than that by now. Uh, number of volumes in the list. Let me just skip over this. Uh, so he's saying it's going to cost you 300 books, $300 if you buy all the books, right? Time required for reading, four years at seven hours per week, 10 hours per volume. So a relatively small amount of time. If you buy 100 books, even today, you get used copies. Maybe they're five, 10. Some of them are a little harder to find. You're investing, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand dollars. Um, but four years of your life and a couple thousand dollars is a very small amount to pay. And it, I wouldn't, uh, obviously, I'm not going to read the books, just the books he recommended. But this idea, anyways, I just love this idea. He just happened to, like, codify it for us. Let me go back to his thoughts on reading and why this is so important. Because um, I just thought it was just fantastic thoughts he had. Read actively, not passively. Consider at every step whether what you read accords with your own experience and how far it may be applied to the guidance of your own life. But if you disagree with an author, this is so important, but if you disagree with an author or are shocked by his heresies, read on nevertheless. Tolerations of differences in one is, is one mark of a gentleman. Make notes of all passages that offer help toward the reconstruction of your character. He emphasized the word your not someone else's character, are of the achievement of your aims, he emphasized the word your again, and classify these notes in such a way that you may at any moment and for any purpose be ready to be ready to your hand. So what he's describing there is the same process I do for the books. I'm not, you know, how many, there's been 160 something books. I don't even know what it is right now. So far in Founders, I'm not going to be able to reread all of them, but I can pick up the, the, the note taking, which is very simple. You just and I, I had to learn through trial and error. You can't use highlighter because they're going to fade. I've gone back to books I highlighted like two years ago, and you can barely tell because it's so dry. So I use pen. But if you just you, you use a pen, a marker, and post-it notes, and you know maybe you'll make 20 highlights a book. I don't know. I do more than that. But let's say you found 20 interesting things in that book. You could pick that up, spend 15 minutes reading those 20 things, and and refresh your memory and and not forget the important ideas because you're investing a lot of time reading. You know, any book's going to be 7, 10, 15 hours. Uh, and if you can condense the main ideas down to 15 minutes that you can reread all the time, I think that's good. It's just a smart process. You're doing the, you're going to read anyways. Might as well do a the, the little bit of extra work, right? Going back to the, what Durant's talking about this. Uh, these are sad books, but by the time we reach the end of our list, we should be strong. He talks about the very beginning. Uh, the foundation, the first five or ten books is the foundation. He's talking about like you know some of the stuff that you're reading there is not going to be pleasant. These are sad books, but by the time we reach the end of our list, we should be strong enough to face truth without anesthesia. Um, we may still believe, despite all of our knowledge, that the race that made Plato and Leonardo will someday grow wisdom enough to control population, to keep the seas open to food, and to fuel and fuel for all people and all markets open for all traders and all capital, and by some international organization, graduate humanity out of war. So that's what we're hoping for a lot of those things. What? What is this? 60 years after he wrote those words. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Uh, he's a, I would say, based on reading these two books, he's a bit more optimistic than I am that human nature will actually change. Uh, stranger things than that have been accomplished in the history of mankind. Forty times such a marvel could not equal the incredible development of man 
from slime or beast to Confucius and Christ. We have merely begun. So there's more of his his optimism, right? Then This, then, is our odyssey of books. Here is another world containing the selected excellence of a hundred generations. That's a hell of a sentence. Containing the selected excellence of a hundred generations. When life is bitter, or friendship slips away, or perhaps our children leave us for their own haunts and homes, we shall come and sit at the table and laugh at the world and see its loveliness. For these are friends who give us the only their best. He's talking about the authors who wrote these books. This is a fantastic paragraph, and this is, summary, this is the end of the section. For these are friends who give us only their best, who never answer back and always wait our call. When we have walked with them a while and listened humbly to their speech, we shall be healed of our infirmities and know, that, and know the peace that comes of understanding. And there is a, um, several books that I underlined in the list that I think I'll, I'm going to wind up reading. And if I read them, of course, I'm going to wind up putting them on um, probably on this feed because uh, they're not really biographies. All right. So moving on. OK, so the next essay is the 10 piece of human progress. Really, it's on this is an essay on optimism and progress. And I think by far the, the the most highlighted section of any of the essays. All right. In the year... In 1794, a young French aristocrat by the magnificent name of Marquis Marie Jane. Oh my God, this is French. I don't. His last name is Condorcet. There's no way I'm pronouncing that correctly. All right, we're gonna call him Marquis. Uh, the French aristocrat by the magnificent name of Marquis was hiding from the guillotine in a little attic room on the outskirts of Paris. There, far from any friend, lest the coming of a friend should reveal his hiding place, he wrote the most optimistic book ever penned by the hand of man. By the hand of man. Uh, the translation from French is a sketch of a tableau of the progress of the human spirit. I don't know what that is. Eloquently, he described the recent liberation of science from the shackles of superstition and gloried in the triumphs of, New of Newton. Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, this is a quote from him. Uh, from Marquis. Given a hundred years of liberated knowledge and universal free education, he said, uh, and all and all social problems will, at the close of the next century, have been solved. So more, op again, he's the same kind of optimistic optimist as Durand is. There is no limit to progress except the duration of the globe upon which we are placed. Uh, having completed his little manuscript, Marquis handed it to his hostess. Then in the dark of night, he fled to a distant village inn and flung his tired body upon a bed. When he awoke, he found himself surrounded by the police, taking from his pocket a vial of poison, which he had carried, carried for this culminating chapter of his romance. Marquis drank it to the last drop and then fell into the arms of his captors dead. Never before had man so believed in mankind and perhaps never again, again since. So that's an entire summary of that book. All right, so he's going to list, again, this is kind of ridiculous on its face. It's a little bit ridiculous. Like, how can you... It, it's meant to be. It's meant to be overly reductive, right? Uh, the, the idea that you can have the 10 greatest thinkers, 10 greatest poets, 10 peaks of human progress. Like, it's, it's on its face a little ridiculous, but it's still, I think we can learn from this. So this is where we see his gift of explaining things, giving us a new way to think about things that we take for granted. And so he's going to first, he says, when we look at history in large, we see it as a graph of rising and falling states, nations, nations and cultures disappearing. 
But in that irregular movement of countries and the chaos of men, certain great moments stand out as the peaks and essence of human history. Certain advances, which once made, were never lost. Step by step, man has climbed from the savage to the scientist. And these are the stages of his growth. So I'm going to run through the entire list. Some of them I have highlights on. Some of them I just leave an open-ended question. Number one, speech. Think of it not as a sudden achievement, nor as a gift from the gods, but as the slow development of articulate expression through centuries of effort. Without words, philosophy and poetry, excuse me, without words, philosophy and poetry, history and prose would have been impossible. And thought could never have been reached, could never have reached the subtlety of Einstein. Without words, man could not have become man nor woman woman. So what is he doing? He's really describing something by its absence, which is a really, he kind of flips, you know, we take speech for granted. He, he flips on his head, like, how important is it? Well, take it away. And you wipe out history, prose, thought. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Number two, fire. Fire made man independent of climate. This is the section where I was like, I had to put down the book. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'll never be able to communicate like this guy, communicate ideas like this guy can. Fire made man independent of climate, gave him a greater compass on the earth, tempered his tools to hardness and durability, and offered him as food a thousand things inedible before. It made him master of the night and shed an animating brilliance over the hours of evening and dawn. Picture the dark before man conquered it. Again, describing something by its absence. Number three, the con number three and four is really they're combined. So number three is the conquest of the animals, and number four is agriculture. So I'm going to read from the agriculture section. Civilization was impossible in the hunting stage. It called for a permanent habitat, a settled way of life. It came with the home and the school, and these could not be until the products of the field replaced the animals of the forest are the herd as the food of man. Agriculture, which took man from his wandering life as a hunter, herder, and killer, and settled him long enough in one place to let him build homes, schools, churches, colleges, universities. In other words, it allowed him to build civilization is what he's talking about there. Number five, social organizations. Here are two men disputing. One knocks the other down, kills him, and then concludes that he who is a this is so such an interesting, interesting thought. He's going to talk about it on an individual basis, and then he talks about that same act of killing on a national basis. This is very fascinating. Here are two men disputing. One knocks the other down, kills him, and then concludes that he who is alive must have been right. So on the face, we say no, 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 no. that's not true. Just because you you you're the one that killed the other person doesn't mean you're right, right? And that he who is dead must have been wrong. So we mean you are going to stop right there. So no, that's that's ridiculous. But look what he does here. A mode of demonstration still accepted in international disputes. What is he talking about there? He's talking about war. On an individual, on an individual level, we say, no, no, that doesn't mean just because you, you, you're the killer and you're the survivor doesn't mean you were right. But in war, undoubtedly, we say the nation was right. doesn't mean that they were right to start the war. It means they're the one now they get to dictate the rules, right? Here are two. Now he, he continues to stop. Here are two other men disputing. One says to the other, let us not fight. We may both be killed. Let us take our differences to some elder of the tribe and submit to his decision. It was a crucial moment in human history. For if the answer was no, barbarism continued. If it was yes, civilization planted another root in the memory of man. The replacement of chaos with order. Again, this whole section is about social organization, right? Uh, 
the replacement of chaos with order, of brutality with judgment, of violence with the law. Here, too, is a gift unfelt because we are born within the charm circle of its protection and never know its value till we wander into the disordered into the disordered or solitary regions of the earth. Without con- being conscious of it, we partake in a luxury, luxurious patrimony of social order built up for us by a hundred generations of trial and error, accumulated knowledge, and transmitted wealth. Number six, morality. Here we touch the very heart of our problem. Are men morally better than they were? That's the only part of the section I have because I'm not sure at the answer personally. I think Durant would actually arrive at a separate conclusion that we are. I'm not sure if that's true. Number seven, tools. These multiplying inventions are the new organs with which we control our environment. We do not need to grow them on our bodies as animals must. We make them and use them and lay them aside till we need them again. We grow gigantic arms that build in a month the pyramids that once consumed a million men. We make for ourselves great eyes that search out the invisible stars of the sky and little eyes that peer into the invisible cells of life. We speak, if we wish, with quiet voices that reach across continents and seas. We move over land and the air with the freedom of timeless gods. This is the poetic nature. Look how much information he just put in that one paragraph. Long Long chained, like Prometheus, to the earth, we have freed ourselves at last, and now we may look the eagle in the face. Number, number eight, science. Here man is at its best, and through darkness and persecution mounts steadily towards the light. Behold him standing on a little planet, measuring, weighing, analyzing constellations that he cannot see, predicting the vicissitudes of earth and sun and moon, and witnessing the birth and death of worlds. Or here he is a seemingly unpractical mathematician tracking new formulas through laborious labyrinths, clearing the way for an endless chain of inventions that will multiply the power of his race. Here is a bridge, a hundred thousand tons of iron, suspended from four ropes of steel flung bravely from shore to shore and bearing the passage of countless men. This is poetry as eloquent as Shakespeare ever wrote, or consider the city-like building that mounts boldly into the sky, guarded against every strain by the courage of our calculations, and shining like diamond-studded granite in the night. Here is physics. Here in physics are new dimensions, new elements, new atoms, and new powers. Here in the rocks in the auto... Here... Oh, this is such an interesting way to think about it. Here in the rocks is the autobiography of life. Here in the laboratories, biology prepares to transform the organic world as physics transformed matter. Everywhere you come upon, uh, come upon them studying, these unpretentious, unrewarded men, you hardly understand where their devotion finds its source and nourishment. They will die before the trees they plant will bear fruit for mankind, but they go on. Number nine, education. More and more complexity we pass on to the next generation, but more and more complexity we pass on to the next generation, the gathered experience of the paths. It is almost as contemporary innovation. It is almost a contemporary innovation. This tremendous expenditure of wealth and labor in the equipment of schools and the provision of instruction for all. Perhaps it is the most significant feature of our time. Once colleges were luxuries, because again, he's going to describe the importance of something by describing its absence. Once colleges were luxuries designed for the male half of the leisure class. 
Today, universities are so numerous that he who runs may become a PhD. We, we have not excelled, this is very interesting, we have not excelled the selected geniuses of antiquity, but we have raised the level and average of human knowledge far beyond any age in history. We dislike education because it was not presented to us in our youth for what it is. Consider it not as the painful accumulation of facts and dates, but as the ennobling intimacy with great men. Consider it not as the... This is the the idea, the the Munger idea I I just referenced earlier. Consider it not as the preparation of the individual to make a living, but as the development of every potential capacity in him for the comprehension, control, and appreciation of his world. Above all, consider it, in its fullest definition, as the technique of transmitting as completely as possible to as many as possible that technological, intellectual, moral, and artistic heritage through which the race forms the growing individual and makes him human. Education is the reason why we behave like human beings. We are hardly born human. We are born ridiculous. Uh, We are born ridiculous animals. We become human. We have humanity thrust upon us through the hundred channels whereby the past pours down into the present that mental and cultural inheritance whose preservation, accumulation, and transmission place mankind today with all its defectives and illiterates on a higher plane than any generation has ever reached before. And number 10 is writing and print, which I feel is, you can combine 9 and 10 with education, right? And he again, this is because he describes something by its absence, which is a really interesting and profound idea that he uses multiple times throughout the book. Writing and print. Again, our imagination is, to, is, is too weak-winged to lift us to a full perspective. We cannot vision or recall the long ages of ignorance, impotence, and fear that preceded the coming of letters. Through those unrecorded centuries, men could transmit their hard-won lore think of that as knowledge, right? Only by word of mouth from parent to child. If one generation forgot or misunderstood, the weary ladder of knowledge had to be climbed anew. That's the description by its absence. Writing gave a new permanence to the achievement of the mind. It preserved for thousands of years, uh, it persevered through, for, for thousands of years and through a millennium of poverty and superstition, the wisdom found by philosophy and, and the beauty carved out in drama and poetry. It bound the generations together with a common heritage. It created the country of the mind in which, because of writing, genius need not die. Okay, the next essay he has is called 12 Vital Dates in World History. He tries to pick out the 12 actually most important dates. I'm only going to include one. Um, and then I'm going to close on this and you'll see why. Um, this is the end of the book. Um, all right, so this is actually 11, his 11th out of the 12, and it's 19, excuse me, 1769, and it's when James Watt brings the steam engine to practical utility. This event inaugurated the Industrial Revolution. Essentially, there are only two fundamental and pivotal events in human history. The Agricultural Revolution, in which men passed from hunting to tillage, to tillage and settled down to build homes, schools, and civilizations. And the Industrial Revolution, which threw millions and millions of men, first in England, then in America and Germany, then in Italy and France, then in faraway Japan, now in China, the Soviet Union, and India, out of their homes and their farms into cities and factories. It transformed society and government by empowering the owners of the machinery and the controllers of commerce beyond the owners of titles and land. It transformed religion 
by generating science and its persuasive miracles and inducing many men to think in terms of cause and effect and machines. It transformed the mind by substituting novel and varied stimuli, necessitating thought, for the old ancestral and domestic situations to which instinct had been adapted and sufficient. It transformed women by taking her work from the home and forcing her into factories to recapture it. It transformed morals by complicating economic life, postponing marriage, multiplying contacts and opportunities, liberating women, reducing the family, and weakening re religious and parental authority and control. He's also not saying that all of these are good things, by the way. And it transformed art by subordinating beauty to use and subjecting the artist not to a favored few with inherited standards of judgment and trained taste, but to a multitude who judged all things in terms of power and cost and size. All this, incredible as it may seem, is in that single invention of James Watt. All this and more, capitalism, socialism, the imperialism that must come when industrial nations need foreign markets and foreign food, the wars that must come for these markets, and the revolutions that must come from these wars. Even the Great War and the vast experiment in Russia were, co were corollaries to the Industrial Revolution. 1769 stands for the whole modern age. And this wraps everything up. I know how partial and provincial all this must be. We are all born within frontiers of space and time, and struggle as we will, we will never escape from our boxes. I let the reader, then, make his own lists, helping himself to what he likes in mine. Let him try to build for himself another perspective and unity that shall clarify human development for him. And let him remember the words which Napoleon bequeathed. To our quote from Napoleon here. May my son study history, for it is the only true psychology and the only true philosophy. And I will leave it there. I will leave a link in the show notes. If you want to buy the book and support the podcast at the same time, you can do so by on that uh, using that link. Thank you very much for your support. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.